Lord, this morning as we come to you, I wonder in my own heart, I wonder if that's shared by others, be thou my vision, whatever befall. Lord, what a prayer in that song. To be with you and you with us. To live under your word. To be guided by your spirit. Be empowered by the life of Christ. What an amazing thing that is. And yet, Lord, we are here to sing, to worship be under your word, that we might know how to do these things, that we might know what that life looks like. So strengthen us with your spirit. Encourage us with your words. Be our vision so that whatever comes, whatever befalls, we will know and recognize you as Lord of all. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be be seated. So as Germany's wartime intentions were, were dawning on Britain in 1939, they were also wondering about Russia. And Prime Minister Winston Churchill said that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Uh, And that kind of sentiment is what has been told to us uh, by many Christian leaders about the apocalypse, about the book of Revelation, to John. That's the last book in the Bible. We're told... Quote, it's one of the most difficult to understand because it abounds in unfamiliar and extravagant symbolism. They go on to say symbolic descriptions are not to be taken as literal descriptions, nor is the symbolism meant to be pictured realistically. One would find that not only difficult, but also repulsive. This is the... This is what we're told. And so, so I'm wondering that after a year's, nearly a year's time and over 40 messages on the book of Revelation, we've had a few on Daniel and some other things, we find ourselves at our journey's end in our study of the book. At the very onset, I set a, a few goals, not the least of which was to show that far from being a riddle wrapped in a mystery... Inside an enigma, Christ himself tells us that the book of Revelation is, in fact, an open book. In Revelation 22, 6, he says, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
So he gave the vision in order to reveal, not to conceal. That means furthermore, how can you keep the words of the prophecy of this book if they're not understandable? There's an ancient legal principle that actually has uh, gone from way back all the way, and, and it, it's a part of our legal code as, as well. And it's related to uh, selling property that you don't own. <laughs> In uh, Latin, it goes something like this. Uh, Namo date quad nane habete. You cannot give what you do not have. Can you provide me with money if you have no money? Can you give me a bike if you don't have a bike? Can you keep the words of an agreement if there is no agreement? Can you keep the words of the prophecy if the prophecy has no meaning? This is the book of revelation. It's not the book of obscuration. We have discovered through our journey together, that when we take the literal, ordinary meaning, it does, in fact, make sense. It reveals what it's intended to. God did not give us this book or his word to be opaque or abstruse or incomprehensible. In fact, Revelation 22, 6, 7, we're clearly told that the purpose is not to bewilder, it's not to confuse, it is to reveal the things that must soon take place. And the most important thing, I think, is found in verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. So this last book, probably the most neglected uh, book uh, by the church, with its meanings being confused by so many expositors, is in fact designed by God to be understood. So how are we to respond to the revelations that Jesus gave to John? I will suggest that there are at least three. The first one is found in verses 8 and 9, worship. In Revelation 22, 8 and 9, the text reads, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, John was so overwhelmed by the entirety of this vision that he fell at the angel's feet and worshipped the angel that was showing him these things. Now, let me tell you what, that was the correct response. Worship was the correct response, but it was directed at the wrong person. I mean, we do that too. We Sometimes we're so overwhelmed that we feel feelings towards a person that should belong to God. And the angel quickly turns to John and, and he says, we're fellow uh, workers. God alone is to be worshipped. Now, you got to understand that to worship God alone was in John's bones. But what he was seeing was so overwhelming 
that all he could do was fall down in, in worship. So the angel reminded him that they were fellow servants with the prophets and also with those who heed the words of the book. You know who those are, right? That's us. Here we are. And that's why we're going to, we have to respond to this book. So not only are we to worship, but the second thing is we're to proclaim. In 22, 10, and 11, he said this. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, Daniel was told that the prophecies would be sealed until the time of the end. You read that in Daniel 12, 9. But John was told, do not seal the prophecy, the words here. Now, this contradicts that notion that, that revelation is some kind of impenetrable puzzle. The message of the book is not hidden. In fact, not only is it not hidden, it's to be proclaimed in order to produce worship and obedience. John was told, don't seal it up uh, because the time is near. I mean, in Christ's imminent return has been just that since that day. Actually, since Christ ascended into heaven, you have this uh, situation where we find ourselves that there is nothing. I know, I know there are many people who say, no, this has to happen and this has to happen and this happens has to happen before Christ can return. That's nonsense, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, there is nothing that can interfere with Christ's return. His timing is his uh, timing. And the fact that the prophecy's words are not sealed shows us that there's no hidden, there's no secret meanings that we have to ferret out from the text's ordinary sense. I love that first uh, quote that I read where you've got these extravagant symbolism. Has the man never read the book of Ezekiel? Daniel? No, no, this is all in line with the biblical text. And that's what we did. We went back in order to determine what those things meant in, in this uh, book. And in fact, the text is actually fairly simple. And when you take it in the ordinary sense... In everyday understanding of the words, uh, they convey the purpose of God that he intended for us to, to get. And uh, the words, they're not closed. They can be understood. They must be proclaimed. The time is near. This morning, we were talking about where Peter was telling us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of God. And I just, I love that word excellencies because there's something underneath the word excellencies that has to do with these moral attributes, these attributes that are, that are really high and exalted. But understand this, it has the notion built in, it's built into the very word itself of valor. And what that means is, is exercising your moral Compass, acting on that requires courage. Less so when our culture was dominated by a Christian consensus. But as we see that consensus dying, 
yeah, it's still dying. It's not dead yet. You will find that that's true more and more. There is a notion of valor in the presentation. In other words, it requires courage. Why? Because when you do that, you stand against the world. Now, verse 11, I'm sure this is probably one of the most puzzling for anyone who's ever looked at this text. It says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What in the world does that mean? Stop preaching the gospel? I don't think so. We know it doesn't mean that because the way I understand Scripture, in verse 17, which we'll look at in just a few moments, we have an invitation to the gospel. God offering one final invitation. So what does it mean? Some argue that it it means that the time is so short that there's no time for the person to change. Okay. Uh, I think verse 17 and, I don't know, 2,000 years of history kind of belie that. There's something else going on here. Doesn't it rather mean what Ellicott wrote when he said this? Is it not the declaration of the ever-terrible truth that men are building up their destiny by the actions and habits of their lives. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. The righteous become righteous. The godly become godly. The point of the text here is that we're not to condone evil, but we are to understand that the people who do not heed the proclamation of this word, which we're responsible with valor to give, will continue in their wickedness. And that should not surprise you. If they do not heed the word of God, they do not care for the things of God. They will continue in their wickedness. As Ellicott said, uh, verse 11, the certainty that someone's character reveals their deeds. That's the basis that we read about for divine judgment. And and actually, that applies to us too, except for Jesus Christ gave his life to stand in our stead so that his deeds are perfect even when ours are not. Now, John was from Ephesus, so he would have known about this man, Heraclitus, which we would say in English. He was from Ephesus too, and 500 years before that, he said, Ethos anthropos daimon, which means character is destiny. And, and this Greek word character is a fascinating word because the word character is not only the, the implement or the instrument of the engraving or the carving, uh, like a chisel itself. But it's that which the instrument does. And, and I mean, it only makes sense because if you're carving your name in stone, you don't just whack a rock with a chisel and your name appears. Right? Have you ever whacked a rock with a chisel? Not too many times, I trust. But what you do, if you're ever going to put your name on a rock, you do it with a series of taps. Tap, 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 tap. 
tap, 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 tap. And over time, as you tap, 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 grooves are formed, and, and then they are easier to follow. And so pretty soon you're able to really hit it because your chisel won't bounce out of the groove because you've created these uh, grooves that you can strike harder without damaging the surrounding stone. So if you follow the metaphor, which the Greeks came up with, not me, that is, is that the tap, 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 tap are your deeds. And your deeds ultimately lead to this chiseled form in the rock. And that chiseled form in the rock ultimately becomes the thing that defines you, that is forming your character. So we're not to condone evil or filth, but we are to understand that in the context of the opening, that is the revealing of the book, once it has been opened, that some will continue to pursue evil and you cannot stop them. And I won't say stop trying to stop them as such. I would say pray for them. Pray for them. On the other hand, we who heed the prophecy will continue to do right. But character is really something that, that's built in. I mean, when a driver would pull really dangerously close to our car when we were driving along, you know, at highway speeds, uh, Barb and the girls would, you know, scream or, you know, why did he do that? He, he almost killed us. And invariably, I would say the same thing after I said the first thing, which is probably not good for here. But I would say, I'd say, girls, watch him. Watch him. And the first opportunity he gets, he's going to cut someone else off. He did not cut off because we did anything. He cut us off because he is a driver cutting off kind of person. That's his character to do that. You know what I'm talking about. This is what people do. I can say with, once you know someone's character, you can say with near certainty what they will do in a given situation. Someone once said, or something like this, show me a person's character and I will show you their God. Then in uh, verse 12, so we're to proclaim this, okay? So it's a part of our character to be proclaiming. And it does get easier uh, as, as we tap. But he says in verse 12, again, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And, and that brings us to the final response, not the final bit of the message, just the final response that we're to give back. And that's faithful service. So in verse 12, the speaker is Jesus Christ once again. And for the second time, he declares that he is coming soon. He is coming quickly. His coming is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any moment. So Jesus said when he comes, he is going to bring his reward with him to render or give to every man according to what he has done. I want you to note something carefully here. 
Uh, and someone gave me this statistic just the other day, and it was somewhat staggering to me, that the statement in the evangelical community at large that your salvation is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ and not by works that you do is accepted only by 41% of the evangelical community. Now, I, I trust that we're not among that. If, if you are, I would, I would challenge that thinking. But nevertheless, some of that thinking comes from verses like this, where it, we have every man, uh, he comes with his reward with him to render or give to every uh, person according to what they have done. Hmm. I want you to note something, and I can't develop it fully, although we have in the past and we will do so again in the future, that salvation is a free gift based on Christ's work on the cross, but rewards are based on faithful service. So that while it is the work of Christ on the cross that gets you into heaven, once in heaven, the rewards are granted based on what you did here on earth. I mean, the knowledge that Jesus Christ is returning should not, as it has in the past, put people in white robes up on top of hills waiting for him to come. That's, that is in no way the intent. That was essentially the intent of monasteries, in fact, was to separate yourself away uh, from the world. No, by no means. What it should do is move us to attentive and respectful service to God, proclaiming this message. Now, this is interesting to me because I'm not sure that there's another book in the Bible or another thing in the Bible that is to be proclaimed other than the gospel. And yet this book, which is so neglected by the church, is the one that is to be proclaimed. Paul, speaking of the rapture and the resurrection, wrote this, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that your toil is not in vain. Why would that be? Because he is coming back. But there's more than just these three responses. There remains a, a proclamation about God, about who he is, a blessing, an invitation, and a warning. So in 22.13, we have the proclamation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here again, we, we find Christ described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the, the last, the beginning and the end, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The notion is, is that Christ was, can we use was? That's a strange thing to use of an eternal being. But regardless, our limited minds can only say that he was at the beginning, before the beginning, and he is the consummation at the end of whatever that means. He is all in all. He is the eternal one. 
He is the source and the consummation, the eternal word. Christ has the capacity, the capability, and the will to fulfill all these promises. And then we have a blessing in uh, chapter 22 and 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is the last of actually there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. You can look them up. We've, we've covered them. This is the last uh, one, and it's bestowed on the saints who wash uh, their robes, uh, obviously, in the blood of the Lamb. They have access to the New Jerusalem and the tree of life. And then we have another statement. It's actually an invitation. In 16 and 17, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Now, as we come to the final set of these verses in the Bible, it's only appropriate to note that the Bible has come full circle. I mean, in the opening pages of Genesis, a coming Savior is promised, one who would redeem his people from their sins and free us from Satan. And that promise came immediately after the fall, Genesis 3.15. And so just as the Bible opens with a promise of Jesus' first coming, it closes with the promise of Jesus' second coming. And in verse 17, we find God's, what I believe to be God's final invitation to sinners to repent, to receive the free gift of salvation through Christ. So in this verse, we have two things. There's two exclamations, come. And the first part is the request. Uh, the second part is an invitation. So the first part is addressed to believers. The second part, unbelievers. The phrase, let the one who hears say come, that invites those who hear the spirit and the bride to join them. Because remember, we've gone, we've gone way into the future and we've gone into the eternal state. Now we're back in real time. Now we're back in real time and you have the invitation to, uh, to come. The believers are to understand that they are a part of uh, the bride and that Christ's soon return would be for them. And then, I mean, and then you have this, uh, the thirsty. And there are those who say that the thirsty ones and the hearing ones are the same uh, ones. And that, that may be true. It's not a sword I would fall on. But I believe that this is God's final invitation to man. In Revelation 21, 6, Jesus promised, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And here he writes, let the one who wishes take the water of life without 
cost. In this, I see, because remember, we're back in time now. We're, we're no longer in the future state. Now we're in real time, and what he's saying is, is that recognize who you are, recognize your need for salvation and repent, and the Lord will give it to you, and it's without cost because Jesus paid it all. This invitation has been given to every generation from the beginning, from the moment that Christ died until now. There are those who need to recognize their need and realize that Christ is the provider of salvation. And they're urged to come. No sane person, in my opinion, who believes this would not come. The only way you would not come is you think it's nonsense and that you do not believe that it is true or that it is possible. The gift of eternal life is free. It has been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and it's extended to all who are willing to receive it. But then we have a warning Verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. You can't have a more solemn warning than that about tampering with the words of the prophecy of the book of Revelation. I mean, this warning is an affirmation of the truthfulness of God's word. And I believe not simply in the book of Revelation, but throughout Scripture. And Christ here is testifying to his authority and the finality of his words in this prophecy. Nothing is to be taken away. Nothing is to be added and that's one reason, I think, for a person to trust Christ. But there's another reason, too, because we have the full revelation of God. Do you realize that in the Bible we have everything that God intended for us to have as it relates to his word? It's all there, every bit of it. We don't add to it. When you add things to it, all you end up with is trouble. We have the full revelation of God. We understand the eternal blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And so he's really essentially begging one more time while there is life. And so while you have the invitation extended to those who listen, you also have those who will not listen. And then you have this terrible uh, warning I mean, if you think this is just a crazy old man writing and you don't believe it, then you understand where the end will be. Finally, in 2021, he says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. 
So we have this final reminder that he's coming back. He's coming back, and then there's this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The coming could be any time, as I've mentioned before and will mention again. I mean, the entirety of the New Testament teaches the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And John speaks for all believers. I think we can all say with full hearts, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Again, as I I wrap this up, His coming, the truth of His coming should not cause us to isolate. It should cause us to proclaim. It should cause us to humble ourselves and offer faithful service to Him. Or if we do not know Him, to humble ourselves and accept Christ's offer of salvation. We must respond to this book. This is a book that's very much like the gospel. You must respond. The proclamation is made. What will your response be? Psalm 90 reads, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And now it's time for you to look into your own heart. Have you responded? Will you respond to the message of the book of Revelation? And if you don't or have not trusted Christ as your Savior... Have you? Will you? Today is the day to respond to God's, at least in the word of God, final invitation to trust his son, Jesus Christ, and become a member of the family of God where you will spend eternity with him and with all those who believe. Father, we we do not have the time. I know in the book of John it says that uh, for all the things that Jesus Christ did, there's wasn't enough space in the libraries in the whole world to record them. We don't have the time to go through every little thing in the kind of detail that one who is interested in study might want to, but we have gone through sufficiently to understand more about who you are, what your plan is, that your son Jesus Christ is coming for us, and that the door is still open to salvation. It is not yet closed. We thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.